Michael Levin is a developmental and synthetic biologist and professor at Tufts University. Uh, he has made some very important contributions towards uh, understanding bioelectricity and the role that plays in developmental biology, uh, in regenerative medicine, in cancer research, and he's also very interested in the foundations of cognition. Uh, he's interested in diverse embodiments of cognition, uh, sort of the scalability of cognition, all the way from from gene regulatory networks to bioelectricity to behavior and psychology and beyond, um, and also in in synthetic in engineered cognitive systems. Um, I, I'm really intrigued by the foundations of cognition, cognitive science. I think it really holds the key to understanding some very, very puzzling, deep problems. Uh, here, we start off by getting a quick rundown of bioelectricity and the role that it plays in developmental biology. And then we go on to talk about some more foundational problems in cognition and cognitive science, um, including the, the scalability of cognition, uh, consciousness, a bit about goal directedness and the, the role that has in explaining the idea of identity. This is my conversation with Michael. Just to start off, maybe just to orient the audience, uh, do you mind introducing how bioelectricity, bioelectrical states, uh, ended up playing a role in developmental biology um, to sort of change the conventional wisdom of how gene expression determines everything? Yeah. Um... Well, uh, I mean, one, one thing to, to keep in mind is that I'm certainly not saying that gene expression is not important. Uh, absolutely, it's a required uh, component of this. And so there are kind of three streams of, of um, uh, three, three main streams that are, that are uh, re really critical to setting up any kind of patterning, which is, you know, biochemical bio, uh, signaling, including gene regulatory networks and transcription. And then there's biomechanical signaling and then there's bioelectricity. So all of these three things are important and they all sort of interplay back and forth uh, to uh, to implement this this cooperativity among cells to build uh, the, the body and various parts of it. Um, the interesting thing about <clears throat> bioelectricity is that much like in the brain, it plays, I think, a, a, a rather unique role, although it's possible that someday people will find that some of the other modalities do it too. Uh, I think evolution really likes to use bioelectricity as a computational medium. So if you think about what happens in the brain, I mean, a lot of this can be actually um, nicely visualized by thinking about the brain and then loosening some constraints. So we think about what happens in the brain. You have you have an electrical network, and this electrical network allows very rapid learning, decision making, uh, memory, um, uh, preferences, goals, the, you know, these kinds of cognitive things. And then uh, the electric circuits have their say, and then this gets uh, transduced into neurotransmitter movement other second messenger cascades and eventually changes in gene expression in the brain. But these are all, you know, sort of slower downstream steps where, where a lot of the initial uh, computation is done at the electrical level, right? So the rest of the body is basically very similar and that's not an accident. It's because I think that these bioelectrical dynamics were the evolutionary precursor of what we see in brains and neurons. So I think what evolution did was basically speed optimize these dynamics that had always been going on since the time of bacterial biofilms. So I think, if you zoom in on a single cell level, what you see is uh, electrical uh, properties that become transduced through one of uh, half a dozen. We know we know about half a dozen transduction mechanisms. They become um, uh, transduced into changes of, of cell behavior, including transcription changes, including cell motility, cell shape, uh, uh, apoptosis in some cases, proliferate, proliferation, all these things. So that's at the that, that's if you zoom in at the single cell level. If you take a step back and ask what is the uh, bioelectrical layer doing 
Well, it seems to be doing a number of uh, computations that have to do with making decisions at the at the tissue and organ level. So it it decides things like if you're a regenerating planarian, how many heads should we have? If you're a developing frog face, where do the eyes go? How many eyes? Where does the mouth go? Right? Uh, that, those those kind of decisions. So that's you know our our goal is not only to understand the molecular uh, details of transduction at the single cell level but to take a step back and crack the code on a tissue and organ scale and to say, how is it that specific bioelectrical pre-patterns map onto changes of gene expression and anatomy that, that follow them? Right. Was this, was this a surprise to you? Because, I mean, in a way, this has to have always been around. Um, they're far older than human brains. But, but is it a surprise to you how successful the research has been and, and how far it's developed? So, so the, in the details, absolutely. So, I'm always stunned when when I, when I see you know new examples of of bioelectric prepatterns. When I when when we develop new um, uh, control modalities where we can make something new phenotypes and we can make something cool happen or repair a defect, that to me is the most amazing. As so, those things those things kind of surprise and shock me every day. Uh, on on the other hand, you know, I started I started down this road. Basically, you know, my, my, my first thoughts about this kind of stuff was when I was probably 17, um, coming across uh, Becker's, uh, Becker's Body Electric book and starting to think about whether these things were not just another piece of physics, but actually the information carriers that, that, that might have been what the, the, the medium by which the body uh, processed information before brains and neurons. Like that, that, that's something that, that's a, that's a, 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 something I've been thinking about for many, many years. And so from that perspective, it's kind of um, it, it didn't really fall out of the blue because because I've been sort of working toward this. But but I'm shocked every day when when I see these things actually actually working. It's just, you know, it's amazing. Right. One of the most insightful points that I take away from your work is how bioelectric bioelectrical mechanisms aren't aren't novel to the brain. Yeah, uh, right. I mean, you know, um, it's interesting in a couple of in a couple of ways. On the on the one hand, uh, certainly. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of focus on on for example if you on, in, in in neuroscience of course on on neurons and on spiking and so on but people who study fertilization physiology of you know kidney inner ear of a gut these kinds of things I mean those folks have been studying electrical circuits for a long time and of course there's a whole literature on developmental bioelectricity going back uh, I mean some of the first experiments are in the, you know in the early 1900s and then there was a kind of a, a wave of research in the 30s and 40s and then again in the 60s through the 80s and uh, a lot of it got sort of deprioritized when molecular genetics came on the scene because doing biochemistry is easier because you can work with dead cells and tissues you can you can right grind them up and extract the DNA and protein this stuff is hard this bioelectricity you can only see in the living state so you know, so so a lot of that information has has been around, but it, you you can also sort of reach a lot of this uh, from first principles if you just ask yourself, well, where did neurons come from, right? And 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 now we're starting to see that all the machinery, ion channels and synaptic machinery and neurotransmitters and all this, they're ancient, and they were uh, even in the um, kind of uh, uh, in our unicellular ancestor already had a lot of this stuff, right? So you can sort of, you can sort of then naturally start to ask the question, okay, so, and, and, and by the way, some very beautiful uh, work in bacterial biofilms now from, um, from Grosswell's uh, lab. Uh, so yeah, if you just sort of ask yourself, what are the evolutionary precursors of the kinds of tricks that the brain is able to do, you know, it, then, then it becomes kind of natural to think about it. Right, right. Uh, uh... Read something about um, how you found different types of memory in just 
between regulatory networks, um, which which was very surprising. Yeah, that's this is a, this is a different um, um, kind of line of research for us because it's not bioelectric in any way. But but you know, a good a, a, the majority of our lab, in fact, the kind of the the central theme of our lab is looking at uh, cognition in unfamiliar guises. So we're interested in understanding different aspects of of mind, of intelligence, of problem solving, and in, in all kinds of weird implementations, right? So bioelectricity is great because it really helps understand the story of how individual competent cells work together to be a higher level uh, agent that that solves different problems in, in morphological space, for example, instead of cellular or physiology space. But there are other there are other architectures that do this too. And gene regulatory networks, um, of course, are very popular in terms of in, in, in standard developmental biology and so on. And what they what what they illustrate now now by also we are not the first person uh, the, the, we are not the first to 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 realize that gene regulatory networks can learn so Richard Watson and a few other people have have had papers on this for a long time um, what uh, what they help us see is is the is the kind of uh, folly of making assumptions about. Uh, levels of agency of, of of something before you check it. So if you look at a gene regulatory network model, you would say, okay, look, this is this looks just like a piece of chemistry. I can see what everything that's happening here. There's no magic with this. This thing is going to be basically at the level of a mechanical clock, right? That that it's a piece of it's a deterministic piece of physics, and that has medical implications. It means that if I want to change how this works, I have to manipulate the, the the hardware i have to remove nodes add nodes change promoters add new um you know new genes and so on i have to change the topology of the network so but but and and but but that's a really limiting assumption because if you if you don't sort of assume that zero level of of cognitive capacity here but you actually say well let's find out let's 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 see what it can do what you can then discover and what we did was to actually um probe uh something like uh, uh i don't know 50 or 60 um existing ge biological gene regulatory networks compared with um, random ones that you just make up for uh, for controls and you simply ask the question can they learn from prior experience and the grn experience means a stimulation of one or more of the nodes and and so so having had that experience what do they do later and what we found is that we can actually make a taxonomy of six different kinds of learning including habituation sensitization and and remarkably associative learning and we found mm -hmm. that even grns are capable of if you if you look at them the right way, meaning if you choose the right nodes for your stimulus, your conditional stimulus, your unconditional stimulus in your response, if you look at them the right way, you discover that yeah, they can do associative learning. It's amazing. And so and so right and so that it tells you two things. It tells you number one to be really careful when making assumptions because some things are smarter than you think they might be. And so we have to. It's an empirical question. You have to check. You can't just sort of assume or or have feelings about it. Uh, that's the first thing. And the second thing is it gives you a really interesting new way to think about um, how to use drugs, because this idea, right, that that uh, that you find a dose and you put the patient on that dose and then you sort of stay there and hope for the hope for the best. That's um, in many cases, that's not going to be the best way to control the pathway. The, the, the better way would be a timed pulse stimulation where you're literally trying to uh, um, behavior shape the you know it's behavior shaping it's not rewiring at that point so that's a completely different way and so, and, and and we're certainly um, working now on, on on those kinds of applications right so uh, like like thinking about the foundations of cognition uh, bioelectricity or gene regulatory networks are are widely used because 
we have the we have the understanding the work is set out and we have the technology and tools to to intervene there but in principle they're not privileged uh levels of substrate there's no such thing as a privileged substrate it's just what's convenient given given the reality of it is is that sort of yeah, right? I think you're. I think you're right. I think I think there's two levels of convenience here. There's there's what's convenient for us as scientists, in that uh, you know there's an old saying. I don't know who said it, but the sh sh show me the net that you're using to to fish, and I'll and I'll tell you what fish you can find. Right. So so they're they they they're convenient for us, meaning yes, we found them. Who knows what else we're not finding because it does it's not convenient. It's a it's an alien form of cognition that we're just not good at noticing. So so the, it you know keeps us humble. It should should keep us humble about that. Um, the other thing though is that clearly evolution finds it very convenient. So for example, bioelectrics is an amazingly convenient interface that cells and tissues expose. To whom? To us as engineers, but also to evolution itself, to each other, to other cells, and also to parasites and and conspecifics and various other things that might uh, um, exploit them. So, so, uh, but but you're right in that I don't think there's anything magical about either bioelectrics or GRNs. They're just the the, the examples we understand now, and it's entirely possible that, uh, for example, I there, there's a few people that have. Um, done some some amazing work on uh, networks of springs and li literally just springs and you know so so Christopher Buckley and and uh, Richard Watson have been studying uh various kinds of uh uh learning and and behavior in in networks made of springs and for all we know there are other architectures that exploit biomechanics magnetics uh optical phenomena who knows right in the wide universe i mean there's probably many other substrates right so there there, there might be like uh, principle limits as to how far we can look at the substrate, like Gerdelian type of limits as we can we can only scale up to a certain extent just because we might have some epistemic machinery that stops us from going further. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's entirely possible. I mean, uh, it's 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 the problem of giving an IQ test to somebody who's smarter than you, right? It may be really hard, right? It might be really hard for us to recognize new kinds of intelligence. It's related to the problem of hierarchical nested intelligence, which is which which I'm also really interested in. You know, individual cells work together to form larger agents that solve larger problems. They might they form tissues and organs, and they, they you know individuals form collectives and you know ant colonies and things like that. One might ask, as a as an individual, can you tell if if you are part of a larger system like that? And if you can, if you can, what might the goals of that system be? Now, I think you're right in that there are probably serious girdle type limits as far as really being, a, if, if you're really just a piece of the, of, the, of the machine to really understand what the collective is doing, we probably cannot understand that. But you might be able to gather evidence that something like that is going on, right? If, you're, if your action space is being distorted, uh, you might be able to gain evidence that it's not being randomly distorted. So, so I, I like to think about this as a um, imagine imagine for the moment that uh, you're a uh, you're a neuron in a in a neural network that's being trained, right? And so, if you could, and I know I'm mixing metaphors here, but but if if you were smart enough to ask the question, you might ask yourself, do I live in a cold mechanical universe that doesn't care what happens to me, 
or do I live in some sort of mindful, bigger picture universe where there's a bigger picture and a grand design of some sort? Right? So humans argue about this all the time. You know, some people say, you know, no, we're sort of cogs in a in a in a mechanical machine, and other people say, no, no, you know, life teaches me lessons, and and I feel like there's a greater pattern. Right? So if you if you think about that from the perspective of a neuron. If that neuron were to conclude that uh, the universe that it lives in is a sort of um, uh, a zero agency sort of cold environment, it would be factually wrong because in fact, right, because as the network is being trained for certain things, so you could imagine, you know, certainly it can't have a good understanding of what the goal is, but it might, you know, as these waves of back propagation and, 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 and you know, sort of external tuning of the wash over it it might realize that, you know, certain things get rewarded and punished in this world. And maybe there is, right, maybe there is some kind of a purpose to what's going on that is uh, different from just, you know, just randomness. So, so I don't know, you know, again, I think, I think it's a good, there are certain, I'm, I'm sure there are girdle limits, but, but we might be able to get at least probabilistic evidence that something is happening to us. Right, right. No, that, that makes sense. Okay, so just for the audience, do you mind? Uh, introducing this notion of a multi-scale competency arch uh, hierarchy architecture uh, and what role that plays in in getting to the foundations of cognition. Yeah, um, uh, the multi-scale competency architecture is basically this notion that that in biology and and there's no reason why we can't uh, you, you know it's not it's not uniquely biological. I mean t today it is, but but in the future there's no reason why we can't as engineers all can't use this. Is this idea that we are that we are not only nested uh, kind of hierarchical uh, beings in a structural sense. So we all know, you know, there are chemical networks that are that make up cells that make up tissues and organs and and so on. So there's this hierarchy, but it's not just a structural scale hierarchy. It's a it's a hierarchy in which every layer and component of that hierarchy is itself a uh, a goal directed agent meaning that it has some competency, it may be very profound, maybe very, very, very subtle, competency to solve problems in some specific space. So there are cells that solve problems in metabolic and physiological spaces, and then there are tissues uh, that's and organs that solve problems in anatomical morphous spaces, and then they give rise to a human, for example, that or, or any other motile animal that might solve problems in three-dimensional space. And, and maybe later you learn to operate in ling linguistic space and who knows what else, what else there is. So this, this has uh, many, many profound implications. I mean, one implication is that, uh, well, oftentimes people will make this distinction. They will say, well, there are collective intelligences, right? So ant colonies and termites and, and bird flocks and so on. And then there are real intelligences like me. And, and, so, and so, you know, then, 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 you know, maybe I consider a, a termite amount of a, 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 a real, you know, a collective intelligence, and maybe I don't, but you have to make the case that this is like a real entity aside. Well, the thing is, there are no, there, all intelligences are collective intelligences because all intelligences are made of parts. There is no such thing as this like immutable diamond of of intelligence that is like a single indivisible thing. It, 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 it's impossible. So we are all, you know, you and I are, are bags of cells, basically, right? We are all made of of these competent little little pieces of of um, components that are neurons and other things. And the big puzzle here is to is to understand how the competencies of the individual parts give rise to a whole that to, to the next level up that has goals and competencies in a completely different space. 
and right and and okay so 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 that's so that's one uh one kind of implication to really understand that there are no non-collective intelligences we are we are all made of parts the second implication is for engineering uh you can ask this question um i i sometimes give a talk called why why don't robots get cancer so you can start thinking about this this idea that right now the way we build most of our technology you hope let's say let's say some sort of autonomous robotics you hope that there's some intelligence at the higher level but the parts are completely passive the parts are not doing anything right for, for by and large i mean of course there's now efforts in in um uh, smart materials and things like that so 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 the good news is that you never face the problem of robot cancer meaning that the parts are never going to go off and do something different because they have their own agenda and the, the coordination is broken down so that that's that's good and so that makes them more predictable and, and maybe a little more boring um the bad news is that uh and we can we can talk about this um some of the some of the most amazing properties of living things come from the fact that uh, all of these levels are cooperating and competing against each other. So the fact that that there are multiple levels that solve independent problems is hugely important. And so that leads me to a uh, third implication, which is for for evolution. Now, I'll just give you a very simple example. Um, we've sh we've shown that if you have a tadpole uh, and you uh, put an eye on its tail instead of in its head, those animals can still see. The eye can connect to the spinal cord. The brain can recognize information coming from its tail somehow, and uh, and and those animals can still see. Similarly, uh, if you make a tadpole where the craniofacial organs are scrambled and the mouth is sort of off to the side, during during the steps towards metamorphosis, it will all of this stuff will sort of rearrange, and you'll get a pretty normal face out of it. Those now, what 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 are those? Those those are competencies of the individual organs. It means that. If you induce an eye on the tail or a mouth in the wrong, in off to the, right, the wrong place, they have the competency to still get their job done. The cells will do what they need to do to get as close to normal as possible. This has this has massive implications for evolution because if if you didn't have this, if you had an organism that was basically Lego, right, where every piece just goes exactly wherever the genome uh, to put it, that's where it goes. Okay, and, and I'm not sure there are any organisms like this. Maybe C. elegans, maybe I'm not sure. But 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 if you had organisms like this, then anytime you had a mutation, let's so let's say that you had a mutation, and like all mutations, it does multiple things. It uh, let's say that it moves the mouth off to the side, but also does something useful somewhere else. Well, evolution would never get to see the useful part because that animal would starve and the fitness is zero. And as you would expect, most mutations would um, would be uh, negative; they would be deleterious. And and so the the search space. Right, that evolution would have to search would be really rugged because you would have to wait until you found a different mutation that did the good thing but not move them out. That might be very hard. It might be impossible. Um, okay. Uh, however, in contrast, imagine that uh, you had a uh, you had an animal which is much more realistic, where the parts had some competencies, and so now this mutation shifts the mouth or the eye, and it also does something else. Well, now those parts will get back to where they need to go. They will be functional. So now evolution gets to explore the other consequences of that mutation. So by having the parts be competent, it gives it, it greatly smooths and alters the landscape of, of, of that evolution has to search because um, now, now all those potentially negative mutations are neutral because the, the competencies of the parts can sort of make up for a lot of that. So... And so that has that has a, a couple of interesting implications. The obvious one that's obvious and one that's really not obvious. The obvious one is that it makes things much more evolvable. 
And so, right, it means that uh, it, it's it, you're now searching instead of searching a really difficult space of all of of micro positioning of all this stuff. You're searching some kind of a reward space where it's really behavior shaping, right? Your your material is not passive; it's an agential material. Your cells already have capabilities and preferences and signal processing and so on. So, what you're searching is is the signals that will get them to do specific things. The not obvious thing is that by having competent parts, you are hiding a lot of information about the genome from selection, because if selection gets hold of a pretty good individual. You can't tell whether that's a good individual because the genome was was amazing or because the genome is actually not very good, but all the parts sort of made up for it, right? So so maybe maybe the genome had all kinds of problems with where the eye is supposed to go in the mouth, but by the time selection acts, everything's where it needs to be. That sets up a positive feedback loop that becomes an intelligence ratchet because uh, the more competency you have, the less evolution is able to 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 select for better genomes. And the only work that can happen at that point is to select for more competency because you can't select for better hardware because you don't see the hardware. You don't, you don't see the, the, the genetics that specify the hardware. But what you might be able to do in, in evolution is to improve the competency. And so therefore there's this kind of runaway effect where uh, that's, I think that's, and, and, and if you want to talk more about this, I have, a, I have an example with planaria that, that I can talk about, illustrate this. But the idea is that it just, it just sort of selects for this incredible competency of, of, of morphogenesis that that try that that is able to make up for all kinds of perturbations and and so on for this for this for this reason is that sort of a signifier of intelligence that you're using the the ability to uh, solve whatever goal is at relevant at that level uh, despite all sorts of changes all sorts of challenges. I, I yeah, I I mean, so so of course there are many definitions of intelligence, and I'm not saying mine is the only one. There are, there are many good ones, but but the one that I like that's appropriate for our work is uh, one that William James uh, pulled out, and his his idea was basically the ability to reach the same goal by diverse means. So that's that's very interesting. But it's a very interesting definition because it's agnostic about all the right stuff. It doesn't mention what you have to be made of. It doesn't mention that you have to be have a brain. It doesn't mention how you got here. So whether you were evolved or designed or some combination of both, it doesn't say anything about any of that. What it does is it focuses on a very kind of cybernetic notion, which is that you have the ability to uh, to to achieve some sort of preferential state, whether or not whether you start in different other configurations. And the thing that uh, the control knob that we get to twist, it, well, there's three of them. The first one is how much competency do you have? So you could have very low competency. You could be a ball rolling down the hill, and about the only thing you you know how to do is minimize your 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 potential energy, and that's and that's it, right? So, or you might be really clever and some sort of autonomous vehicle, or or an animal, or a human. There's all kinds of different gradations. So you so 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 what competencies do you have? And then of course you have to specify the space in which those goals exist. Right. And then you have to specify what the goals are. And all of these things are empirical. They're not, you know, this isn't philosophy. You, you can't just make this up. You have to make hypotheses about this and then do the experiment and see what competencies does your system have to reach those goals in that space. Right. Um, so just a kind of conceptual question, um, thinking about cognition, intelligence, memory, these things, um, how, how people often think of it as, uh, I'm just taking a shot at it. I think there's a lot of diverse ways how people think cognition, but um, think of cognition as sort of a container for information processing systems, and then things like uh, intelligence or memory or uh, perception seem to be added on uh, properties of information processing systems. Is that, do you think, conceptually helpful 
um, in how to think about con- uh, cognition, or would you would you change anything there? I I like um, I like uh, sort of the pers- the the uh, active inference approach, you know, kind of like Carl Friston's sort of stuff, where it's really very much um, at the beginning. So it's like already very simple physical systems have have some ability to uh, minimize certain quantities and 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 to do some amount of active inference about what happens next. And so on top of that, and and so I can you know I can I can sort of tell a story if if you want I can tell a story about how I think um, minimal agents arise from from nothing basically. But but all of the capacities that we think about so 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 memory and and preferences and then metacognition that lets you change your goals and so on and then uh, planning and then who knows what else right all of these things sort of are scaled up versions of very simple things that really minimal agents are doing. So I can tell stories about um, uh, metacognition in bacteria, and I can tell stories about uh, a sense of free will in extremely uh, minimal kinds of systems. Right. So we're, yeah, how, how do you how do you address the question of where it starts? Like, is there is there a bottom out somewhere where there is zero cognition? I know that question is very um, annoying to deal with because uh, both answers seem unsatisfying, right? Like it seems unsatisfying to say that, oh, there's a point where it's just physics and it stops and it becomes alive, but it all, it's also kind of ridiculous to go the other way where you say um, everything is alive in some sense. So yeah, how do you how do you deal with that? A couple things. Uh, I'm not going to say anything about what's alive because I actually don't know of a good definition for that and I spend no time thinking about uh, the definition of life. Other people do, so so it's a fine question, but but I don't deal with that. Uh, I deal with cognition, which I the question of how that overlaps with a set of things that are alive, I have no idea. So, but but let's let's talk about cognition. Does it go all the way down? So. I, I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure yet. However, I lean strongly towards um, the answer uh, that 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 in this universe there is no zero. That it does not go to zero. The reason. The reason is twofold. Um, number one, uh, imagine. Imagine if I said to you, let's come up. Let Let's come up with the most the most minimal versions of what cognition would have to be. Like, what's the what's the most minimal uh, capacity or criteria that we should would have to have. So if I think about what the most minimal capacity is, I would say it has to have two things for to, to, to be on the cognitive spectrum. It has to have two things. One is it has to be able to take actions that are not fully determined by local circumstances. That means that, right, if you're, if you're a billiard ball, the only action you're ever going to take is if you're giving a push, if you're, you're given a push by something else, that's why you're acting, right? There's no, there's nothing that happened three days ago that matters. There's nothing that happened, you know, that's going to happen in the future that matters. It's nothing that happens, you know, uh, far away that happens. It's everything's pretty local, but, but, but the ability to act with some dependency on either future states, if you're really, uh, you know, cognitive to be able to anticipate things or, or events that happened a long time ago or events that are far away. Any any ability along that axis is, is raises the chance that you're actually cognitive. So you have to have some some ability to for non-local decision, non-local action, and that's the first thing. And the other thing is, I would say you have to. There has to be able. There has to be a reasonable story that could be told about you being a goal-directed agent. So there has to be a way. There has to be a way to look at the system where it looks like it's pursuing some sort of goal with some level of competency, even with extremely low, but some level. So, so having said, having put out those two criteria, 
I now real you you realize that uh, elementary particles already do this. So so you have quantum indeterminacy, which tells you that they have this now. It isn't. It isn't uh, in in terms of un unpredictability. So so you have fundamental unpredictability. Now it's random, which is not what we want for advanced cognition. You don't want to be a random agent. That doesn't that doesn't really help. But the fact that the fact that it is not uh, uh, fully locked down by local conditions gives you that nano you know sort of minimal level of 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 free action right that you could ask for. I don't know what else. I don't know what else minimal minimal freedom would look like if not if not that. Uh, and the ability to to pursue goals again with least action principles, you already see that that there is this like extremely low level but not zero ability to pursue goal states. You see it in photon paths. You see it in rocks. Uh, you know, whatever. So um, of course, what biology does that's really amazing is scale those up in a way that just being a pile of uh, rocks does not. Uh, so so that's so that's my one one reason for thinking that there's no zero because as I think to the most minimal things in the world that we know of. They seem to already have it. That's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, as you, as you you pointed out, that it's kind of unsatisfactory in in both ways. Uh, I I think the right way to think about this is to go backwards. If you if you start with it, so so a lot of people start forward, meaning that they'll say, I just can't imagine that paramecia have uh, have you know have have hopes and dreams like us. Well well you have to do two things. First of all, of course you scale down your expectations. No one is saying that paramecia have hopes and dreams like us, but but most capacities have come from simpler versions of those capacities. And the the way to think about this is not to start with paramecia and go up, is to start with you and go backwards. So assuming that you and I believe that whatever cognition is, we have it. We have something, otherwise the word means nothing. So we, we have something. So now let's just start walking backwards. So you walk backwards to when you were born and you walk backwards day by day, minute by minute. And eventually you get to a spot where you are in unfertilized oocyte. And if if, if having, having gotten to the position of an unfertilized oocyte, you say that, okay, all I see is physics and chemistry. I see I see zero cognition here. Then you have to tell me, well, at what stage? Remember, we started at some reasonable level of, of human cognition. When did it wink out? If you if we get to zero, you have to tell me when it when it disappeared. And I, I mean, people, you know, uh, people will will pick lines that are convenient for running a society. So they will say, you know, you have agency when you can sign a contract or when you can rent a, you know, rent a car, which is by the way, older than, than when you can vote. It's interesting. Right. Uh, uh, and, and going backwards. So, so, but, but all of this, but we know all of this is baloney in the same way that, uh, you know, re reaching, reaching maturity on your 18th birthday is baloney. Does anything happen when the clock ticks over to 18? No, of course not. We know that it's just, it's just convenience. So, so I have never heard, despite people talk about phase transitions and this and that, I think if we take development seriously, developmental biology, and we see how, how, how slow and continuous that process is, there's literally nothing that is sharp that, that you know, sort of ticks over. You say, oh, well, look, on day 17 of development, this particular thing just, boom, happened. I mean, that just doesn't happen. So I, I've never heard of a convincing place to put any phase transition like that, anything that's sharp like that. So um, that leads me, I, I don't know of any way out of this. I, I, I think there's got to be cognition. To, I, I think it has to be a continuum, and I think it has to go all the way down.
you know, can I, can I prove that there's no phase transition that happens when the, you know, 10,000th neuron uh, sort of gets born? No, I can't prove that, but it's completely implausible to me. And I've seen, I've seen no story like that that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the approach of going backwards has to be more helpful because it's empirically falsifiable. You, you can deal right. with it empirically versus, uh, I feel like whenever we have the, whenever people sit down and make definitions for what, this is what life should be, this is what cognition should be, and then let's go progressively find examples of it. It never tends to work out. You can always found, find counterintuitive examples that, that throw the whole paradigm up. Exactly, exactly. And and I think that uh, I think that developmental biology and evolution too, uh, because you can go backwards that way as well until you get to you know whatever was here before Archaea. Um, if you take it seriously, it's it's sort of the uh, the ultimate. Uh, it's to me, to me, it's the most magical of all the sciences because you get to see in front of your eyes. You get to see the journey that we all take from physics to mind. Like that's it. You you just see it right there. You start with a pile with a, with a with a pile of chemicals, and you end up with uh, with something that's going to make grand philosophical claims about you know being or not being an agent and so on. And so so that is a slow process. You can watch it happen. It, it's it's amazing. It's the, that is where all the insights should come from. As we tend to think, as we begin to think more about uh, nested hierarchies and and synthetically uh, engineered cognitive forms, I think those distinctions are going to get even more loose and confusing. Uh, well, you won't be able to have that simple test of this thing is alive or sentient or cognitive, or cognitive and we should treat it ethically, and then this thing isn't, and we shouldn't. I, I completely agree. Uh, what all of what what. Uh... I mean, science fiction. Our, our, our authors have are, have been talking about this for the, for the longest time. But 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 right now, uh, both developmental biology and synthetic bioengineering are highlighting the fact that the categories that we used to use, so these binary categories, are they were never any good, but they're definitely not good now. They used to be sort of okay heuristics because back in the olden days, you could walk up to something and you could sort of knock on it, right? And if you heard a metallic clangy sound you could conclude that, okay, this thing came from a factory and it's got very, you know, it's got basically zero um, uh, or, or near zero agency and I'm ethically uh, permitted, it's permissible for me to do whatever I want and take this thing apart. If you sort of knock on it and it's kind of furry and, and, and soft and wet, you would conclude that this is the product of biological evolution and I'm supposed to be nice to it and, and so on. Now, uh, yeah, of course, of course, the science fiction authors have pointed out for, 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 for many decades that yeah, that only works with an N of one example here on Earth. If, if right, if if something lands on your front lawn and this thing sort of trundles out and it's kind of like like metallic looking, but it, it hands you this poem that it wrote and you know about how happy it is to meet you. Like, what are you going to use to decide what your what your responsibilities here are? I mean, we're we're completely at at sea here because because our categories were terrible, because 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 uh, really our binary definitions of of robot of organism of being. You know this idea that our our ethical uh, norms are somehow tied to a a one particular um, path that 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 uh, phylogeny took here on Earth, and that you know we're gonna we're gonna look at how much your brain looks like the human brain, and 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 then and then we'll decide. I mean, this was never this was never good, but but it was it was it was good enough for a while to sort of you know uh, keep keep things rolling. But 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 all of that none of that stuff is gonna survive the coming decades. We're gonna need. For sure, we're we're going to be surrounded by uh, creatures that defy uh, description using old categories, and 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 the ethics uh, is going to have to keep up with that. Yeah, 
um, just just a silly aside. Um, have you seen any any fiction or just popular media where where you like it, like where you where you think that it does justice or asks interesting questions? Um, yeah, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I should clarify, I wasn't down on sci-fi at all. I think sci-fi has been, has done, has done the right thing in, in bringing up all these crazy corner cases. And, uh, and it's, it's the ignoring of all that by, by scientists who, um, uh, that, that's, re that's really the problem. Uh, I mean, you know, in the, I, I really like, uh, I mean, one of my favorite authors is, uh, Stanislav Lem. And in his, you know, I, I think I think that's that, that, that's that's good. And also, um, uh, just kind of out of the popular, uh, uh, the, you know, more more popular um, repertoire, uh, the the cantina scene in the original Star Wars, right? This like just incredible mix of of, of crazy biologicals, different, uh, you know, different robots running around, you know, the, the things that look like a footstool on wheels. And then there's C-3PO with concern, you know, existential concerns about life and whatnot. Like that, that um, completely there, what you don't have, which which I, I, I think they handled it way better than, for example, in, in Star Trek, right? If you watch the new, well, it's not new anymore, but but the but the next generation Star Trek, right? They had They had no end of debates about, oh my God, what is data? Is he this, is he that? Star Wars didn't have any of that. You, you, everybody knew that, right? It was all you, you had this giant spectrum. There were every crazy creature under the sun was there. You had your 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 um, androids that you had relationships with and of various various kinds. And there were no nobody, right? So they spent zero time figuring out whether C three PO had a, you know, was was this or that. Or I, that's what I think the future is going to look like. I think we are going to transition the, to uh, you know the young people I, I think the young people today have very different attitudes than than a lot of the um a lot of the older folks about this stuff they they're going to have no problem recognizing that some of these things look i don't know why uh fundamentally uh i i hear all the time that you know this is a living organism the you know the majesty of it you know we can't possibly what is it? Why does why does the 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 process of evolution, which is basically this this like um, a meandering hill climbing search over phenotype space, why do we think that that process has uh, a unique monopoly on creating rational agents? Why, right? To to me, if somebody said, "Well, here's the process of evolution," which just sort of bl blindly pokes around, and and sometimes things good things happen, and then here is a, a set of engineers, which by the way can also use evolutionary search if they want to but also they have the possibility of rational design which of these two things is going to come up with better cognitive agents I, I, i'll i'll pick i'll pick the engineers every time because right because why why would it have to only be a natural evolution that can give rise to this I, I that makes no sense to me at all and i think i think as we get better and better at capturing what it is that we mean by um by true agency which arises for spontaneously you know this process of autopoiesis where it's not a robot where everything was nailed down your structure you you know your structure your 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 problem space your capabilities like everything is nailed down by somebody else that doesn't do the trick but once we uh, as engineers once we uh really get on to some of the things that are that are important about agency we're going to be creating this stuff, these these beings left and left and right, um, all over the place, and we need to get over the fact that uh, we're going to be able to draw some kind of binary, you know, some kind of binary line. But but it's very problematic. Look at look at um, you know what happened to Darwin, right? Darwin basically said basically said, well, we used to think there are 
two categories, right? So, so you know, kind of dumb matter and then humans and, and angels and whatever. That's, that's what we used to think. And so Darwin gave us one axis of a continuum and everybody freaked out. And they're still freaking out about this, this, right? There's people still very upset about this, the idea that there's a continuum and then you have to worry about, you know, if we had a... Um, if we had a, a some kind of early hominid, uh, you know, what what would your responsibility to it be, right? Like, who knows? So, so that that's already uh, that's already a problem. Forget that one axis. We're going to have an option space, a, a hugely dimensional option space of every possibility of 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 biological, of synthetic material, of software is going to be some kind of agent, and uh, and and we're going to have to, yeah. So, so to me, I don't know. To me, the um. Oh, oh, and there's another, there's another piece. So, so yeah, so, so I guess the, the cantina scene is the one that I always think of. Uh, the other thing, the other thing that was kind of cool, and I, I don't, I didn't watch the whole show, so I have no idea what else happened, but I, I just remember one scene out of uh, Westworld, you know, there's a show Westworld on HBO, right? And there's, there's, there's this one scene that I thought was pretty good where uh, one of the androids is uh, malfunctioning. So they say, uh, we're going to take you in for repairs. And when they take it in for repairs, what, what does that look like? Well, it's a room, there's a couch, and there's a guy with a clipboard, and he says, okay, lie down on the couch, tell me what's bothering you. That, that, that's, that's how you go for repairs. And that makes perfect sense, because when you get to the point of complexity that you are able to uh, carry on a, um, a, a, a sophisticated interaction with, with, with human you know, clients or whatever it was, uh, by that point, nobody's fixing you the way that that they would fix a vacuum cleaner with with you know with with screwdrivers at that point you may have um existential uh, uh, angst and and phobias and who knows what the heck else that probably where the repair process probably looks like more like psychotherapy than it does like like anything else so i thought i thought that was a pretty good um yeah that, that was a pretty good take on it yeah 100 i mean it, it, it's just unimaginable. Like the possibility space of things like that is just unimaginable. Um, like one thing that threw me in, in preparing for this was, um, I know you don't like to talk about consciousness because of all the confusion, but um, um, talking about what the conscious experience of development would be like, not, not just what the conscious experience of this complete organism is, but what is what does it feel like to be to be a fetus and a developed child. Um, I mean, even that's unimaginable, uh, let alone the possibility space of possible cognitive agents. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have some, we have some examples right here on earth that, uh, have to do with, so, so for example, the, um, uh, the caterpillar butterfly transition, right? So, so, so never mind what is it like to be a butterfly? What's it like to be a caterpillar becoming a butterfly when your brain is literally dissolved? into uh, most of the cells die every all the connections are broken up a completely new brain is built which by the way uh contains a, a, so at least some of the original memories so that's the thing you can you can train caterpillars and and the and the moth or butterfly will 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 show the information uh show evidence of retention so so there's some fascinating questions of personal identity i mean if the memories carry over then 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 there's some identity some you know uh, cognitive identity there uh what does that feel like and so the thing with so you know so 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 yeah so so what this whole issue of what's it like is really important because it shows us the problem with the problem with consciousness the problem with consciousness the the the, the hard problem is that for every other type of uh the question that we may have we may have a theory and 
those theory and and what we know we, we we may not know if it's right or wrong but what we know for sure is the format in which those theories give answers so for example if you're going to have a theory of gravity or a theory of whatever you know what it outputs it outputs numbers that you or something like it that you can then compare with with observations that's what it outputs so now let's ask ourselves okay imagine that we had a correct theory of consciousness whatever it is it doesn't matter what it is but let's say what does it output what are the what are the right what are the uh what format are its predictions in because anything that is is um predictions of, that you can compare to physical outcomes that's that's a theory of behavior that's not a theory of consciousness that's a theory of behavior so that's fine what uh what would a good theory of consciousness even output so if i want to know what is it like to be a, a caterpillar or a or a xenobot or whatever what is what what is the answer going to be like i mean the only thing i can think of is that it's uh that it's art that it's basically the idea is that what it outputs is some sort of stimulus that attempts to put you in in a similar state so and and, and there was a really i'm blanking on that there was a great quote about this from from somebody that to the to the effect that if if you want somebody to uh what was it if, if you want somebody to be uh, to be scared or something don't tell them how scared you are tell them something that makes them scared right and then that basic so so the output of these things is not anything like a theory that we recognize it's an it's a it's a protocol almost right it's here well if you want to know how i feel here do xyz and then you will feel like i feel as much as you know as much as possible right so it's a completely different way of thinking about um about about you know theories and predictions and and yeah trying trying to understand what these uh, what these other uh, creatures what what it's like to be them is uh, you know maybe a hopeless endeavor. Yeah, I mean the methods are so different, like you said. Like uh, I, I often think about um, uh, like contemplative practices and meditation and the philosophy that's attached that's attached with them. It's it's very interesting, very fruitful. But I often think like. It, is it even possible to analytically understand that philosophy the way that we interact with Western philosophy or just the way that we, we go about it is totally differently. I don't think reading it without, without the practice involved um, really will help me understand consciousness. Uh, yeah, I, th I think you're, I think you're, you're, you're right. Uh, the, other, the other thing that makes consciousness unique is that it's one of those areas where you really can't uh, do any you can't do experiments and make progress and remain the same so so right so so in every in every other uh, kind of thing you can do physics experiments and you can do biology and behavioral experiments and you can still be you because because it's a third party kind of uh, it's a third person kind of uh, thing right i mean you're changed a little bit by virtue of the fact that you've now gained new knowledge you have memories so, so you're changed a little bit but but, but it's not much uh if the only way to study consciousness is to do experiments where you yourself are going to change, your, your consciousness is going to change, your propensity to have different kinds of thoughts in the future are going to change if you're involved in some sort of contemplative practice that where the goal is over some really long period of time, consistent effort will get me to have certain kinds of thoughts more or less frequently or whatever you're trying to you know, achieve. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, it changes the subject of of the experiment so and i think uh people yeah people who are who are into that stuff um you know uh recognized that a long time ago and and pointed out that this is very different you're it's a very different way of doing experiments okay uh shifting gears a bit uh so so personal identity 
um, how is the idea of goal-directedness relevant to understanding identity? I, uh, I try to, um, uh, I try to uh, a few years ago now, uh, I tried to come up with a framework where we could try to understand what a self is. Another way to say that is, is uh, an, you know, an agent of some sort. Um, and what I wanted was a definition and a framework where you could compare in the same space selves of radically different construction and provenance. So, so they might, you know, you could compare um, aliens and, uh, and swarms and uh, norm, you know, sort of conventional animals and, and plants and, uh, and robots. And uh, you, you should be able to, you should be able to compare them all on the same, in the same rubric. So, so what I came up with my proposal was, and I'm certainly not the first person to uh, emphasize gold, you know, teleology of some sort uh, as uh, as a central binding feature of a self. This this idea that uh, you are a self to the extent that you can pursue goals that are not the goals of your individual parts, and with some competency, low or higher, in the middle. And um, one thing that uh, defines your degree of uh, of selfhood is the scale of your goals, literally the spatiotemporal scale of your goals. And so this is, uh, this is I, I call this a cognitive light cone, this idea that no, 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 it's not how far out can I sense or how far can I act? It's how big are the goal states that I can strive towards in space and time. So, so you can imagine, right, if you're, if you're some sort of a bacterium, then your goal is to increase the local sugar concentration right now. And maybe you've got a little bit of a tiny bit of predictive, you know, capacity going forward in the gradient, but, but that's about it. If, if you're a dog, you have a lot more, but, but you are never going to care about any, you're never going to have a goal about anything that's, you know, three towns over and two weeks later, like that's just not going to happen, right? You have, you have some spatial and temporal uh, cognitive cone within which all your goals fit. If you're a human, uniquely, you might have goals that are longer than your own lifespan, which meaning meaning that they're fundamentally un, provably unattainable. So you might have goals that are enormous. They might be planetary scale goals. You might have world peace or you want to go to Mars or you want, you know, you're upset that the universe is going to, you know, experience heat death, right? So you might have, you might have these, these enormous goals uh, that are, that are, your, your light cone might be gigantic and, um, and, and, or, or maybe not. And, uh, the point is that that could also possibly be the source of some of our um, psychoses because, you know, we are maybe the first creature to be able to have goals that are guaranteed unachievable. Like that's, that's, yeah, right? that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow actually. Right. So we are the only ones, at least for now that know that. So. It, it, is there any sort of general way of thinking about how these levels of competency, the, these different nested hierarchies interact? that um like can we take any general lessons away from how i don't know how psychology needs to pay attention to to lower level mechanisms or or economics needs to pay attention to some mechanism or is it just a matter of or is it just an empirical question always that you have to kind of go in and find find what's relevant and operable i think i think it's largely empirical but there are some principles we can sort of guess at like one one principle uh that that we're working with is this idea that the larger system is bending the option space of the of the of the systems underneath it. So, in other words, uh, if if you as a as a subsystem are good at doing X Y Z, then I don't need to micromanage how you're going to do that, but I do need to 
bend the 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 reward space for you so that by doing what you're good at you will accomplish something that i as the larger system want so so right so that that idea of 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 the option space being being distorted and this has a lot of um for for it's it's kind of obvious how it works for sales but even at the even at the larger scale for example you've got people who um i don't know if you're uh if if you're a smoker and you want to stop smoking one thing that people will do is they'll they'll take their cigarettes and their car keys and you know and 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 throw them out the window uh, at night because they know that um even though uh they're going to want to smoke in the middle of the night it's too much effort and it's cold and they're not they're not, they're not going to do it so so what you're doing is you've got this higher level that has large scale goals and says, okay, I really shouldn't be smoking, but you don't have direct control over the fact that your 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 um uh, uh circuits in your body are addicted to nicotine. You don't you don't have any direct control over that. But what you can do is change the 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 energy barrier and you can make it a you can make you you can you can you can distort things in your environment that just makes it, that just so you know you're not gonna when you get up at night, you're not gonna do it. And so right, so it's just this kind of a silly example, but but this idea that and just that, that that's how you distort uh, the uh, the energy landscape for your other systems to reward and punish them and induce them to do various things. So uh, the details of all of that are is are empirical questions and they need to be you know kind of uh, settled every time. But I think that idea that that we are all navigating different problem spaces and that our parts are good at certain things and what you really want is for the actions of your uh, of your parts to. They make it they make it easy for you not to have to micromanage stuff, right? Uh, that they're good at, and and uh, and you have to distort their option space so that you can get your own goals met. Right. So is that is that top down causality then? Like it's it's not top down causality in the sense that at the emergent level you're consciously moving something at the lower level, but but you if you can understand the goal directed behavior of the lower level and somehow intervene to to accomplish something, does that? Yeah, um, I, I do think that I do think that top-down causation exists. Uh, I think that well, the good news is that uh, the kind of amazing now is that we don't have to guess or have philosophical debates about it. Um, people like Eric Hole uh, have actually developed a formalism where, at least for certain kind of systems, you can do the math and you can actually see which level does the most work. And so in many cases, it will be the lowest level, but it, in, but, but in other cases, it won't be. So you could actually, it, it, it becomes um, kind of a calculable question for, for certain kinds of systems. But I mean, there, there's, some, there's some amazing examples in biology of, of top-down causation. For example, um, there's this, uh, there's this, there's this uh, thing, you know, uh, in, in, the, in a newt, there are these, um, uh, kidney tubules, these little tubes that go to the kidneys, right? If you take a cross section through them, you see that in normal uh, kidney, there's about eight to 10 cells that, that that communicate with each other and they form a little circle. And that's, that's the, that's the tube, right? What you can do is experimentally, and this was discovered back in the forties, what you can do experimentally is make the cell size larger and larger artificially. As you make the cell size larger and larger, the new, the, the kidney tubule stays the same. Now, how does that happen? Because fewer and fewer cells are now part of this thing. The amazing thing is that if you make the cells truly gigantic, then just one cell will bend around itself, leave a hole in the middle and make the tubule. So now, so now here's where the top-down causation comes in. That me the mechanism of a cell bending itself around is a completely different mechanism from cells uh, undergoing cell-to-cell um, uh, -cell communication and tubulogenesis. 
So that means that in the service of this larger scale structure of making this tubule of a certain size, different molecular mechanisms get called up. So, so, so the idea that that uh, d d different and, and we have other examples that, that I won't go into now, where uh, the same thing happens transcriptionally, where specific uh, pieces of the genome are used when they're needed, and so on. It's uh, I think that in a lot of these cases, you lose a lot by deciding up front that you're only going to do bottom up emergence as opposed to top down causation. I think you lose on pre on the predictive power in a lot of these situations. So do do. Do you think like our, our future engineering technologies need to take a hint from this, that we need to develop, instead of developing sort of systems where we're just macro-managing dumb parts, they need yeah. to develop these nested hierarchies that, I mean, it doesn't have to be to be biological, it doesn't have to be transcriptional to anatomical to uh, uh, neural networks and so on, but but are nested hierarchies the way to go? Yeah, yeah, I, it, I, it's, it's essential. Um, and uh, actually, engineers are already pretty good at this. Uh, we, you know, they've been building with thermostats and with things like that for a really long time. So engineers are okay with 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 the machines that have purpose and, and teleology and so on. It's the biologists that are really upset about it. And uh, I, I think so. You know, Jamie Davies and Davies and I just wrote a, a review on uh, engineer bioengineering with agential materials. And, and I've been saying for years that. Uh, the way we're going to get transformative regenerative medicine is not to micromanage the hardware uh, of, of where, where every cell and where it, all the gene expressions are, but to figure out uh, how to um, convince the collective intelligence of the cells to take a certain path in morphospace, space, basically change the navigation uh, uh, via, via resetting the goals. I mean, we, and we've, we've shown this experimentally in, in certain cases you do much better by resetting the goals of, a, of an intelligent system like that than you will by micromanagement. So, so I think, I think where the benefits will first show up is in regenerative medicine and then uh, bio, you know, synthetic engineering and so on. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think computer scientists have, have a good knack for not getting tripped up over these questions because um, they don't care about a, a privileged substrate or a privileged hierarchy level. I mean, as long as the implementation works, it, it works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and they have, they have a really great example. Uh, I mean, one of the best examples of this is uh, if you look at, uh, you look at a, you look at a microprocessor taking instructions and, and executing them, right. You could try to be a, um, you know, sort of a, a, a reductionist about this. And you can say, there's no such thing as an algorithm. All there is, is electrons following Maxwell's laws of, you know, the electron motion. Have you ever met a coder that thinks that way? I mean, you would never, you would never, you would never be able to do anything if, right? It 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 shows you the sterility of this view. If you want to uh, achieve anything in this uh, in this in this discipline, you have to take seriously the fact that the algorithm drives. It's a, it's a it's an amazing thing. It's the algorithm, whatever the hell that is, is actually um, causally shifting electrons in different paths through your through your circuits. If you don't believe that, you will never build anything. Right, you. So, yeah, and that's what evolution exploits, right? Like it finds ways to to build computer systems. It just finds ways to build logic gates, and that opens up expansively the space of things that can be done. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry, I know we just passed the hour mark. Just two quick questions. Um, sure. So, so one thing, goals. Uh, I have to ask you, where, where do goals come from? Because I mean, in in feedback loops, I can understand sort of simple feedback loops, but but. Yeah. Uh, high coarse grain complex image of what should be built how how does that happen that that's yeah yeah that's that's a really uh deep question and i'm not going to pretend i have any the answer to it but i'll 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 give a couple thoughts um 
the easiest way to uh, sort of the the cheap way to think about this is that well evolution so so uh, evolution makes sure that we only see organisms with certain kinds of goals everything else that had other goals died out in the in the fight for for survival okay that's that's one way to think about it. however um it doesn't do that it doesn't quite do the trick and the reason is think about um think about our xenobots so so our xenobots are these synthetic uh proto-organisms that are formed from frog skin cells that you basically no no genetic modification you take these skin cells off of a frog embryo give them a chance to kind of reimagine their multicellularity they form something completely different they form this little thing that runs around and has all kinds of behaviors and makes copies of itself from loose cells it finds in the environment so so we don't know yet it's very early days we don't know what their cognitive capacities are we don't know what their what their um uh, behavioral goals are we have no idea but they have capacities like, for example, kinematic replication, meaning that if you sprinkle a bunch of cells in the environment, they will run around, compact those cells into little snowballs. Those become more xenobots, and those will go and do the same thing and generation, you know, several generations forward. So now you might ask yourself, well, where did that come from? Where you know it did not come from was years of selection to be a good xenobot, because there's never been any xenobots. There's never there, there's never been selection to be a good xenobot. So where does it come from? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, but I think the closest, and, and Andreas Wagner, uh, he, has, he has some, some really good uh, books, like Arrival of the Fittest and some other stuff. So, so he, I think his thoughts is the closest to mine on this, which is that I really think we're talking about here the same question that people talk about when they ask where the truths of mathematics come from. So for example, right, um, if you, let's say you're trying to evolve a triangle, and so you evolve the first angle and then you evolve the second angle. Well, you don't need to evolve the third angle. You already know what it is. Now, that's kind of amazing. That's a free gift. That saved evolution a ton of time. Where did that come from? So that leads the, the simple question. Well, where do these truths live of geometry, of number theory? You know, the fact that, uh, you know, if you if you have... Um, if you have 10, 10, 10 apples and three kids, you, you just simply cannot divide it evenly, right? Uh, where does that fact live? Because because it it isn't the same as as a lot of the other kinds of explanations we have. The fact that you couldn't do it, the fact that there's no mechanism that does it, the explanation is lives somewhere in Platonic mathematical land, right? So I, I, it's 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 a very um, unconvincing, unsatisfying uh, kind of uh, kind of answer. But I think it's the same sort of question. I think there are what what Stu Newman, Stuart Newman would call. Um, uh, inherent laws, which are free gifts, free lunches from physics, from laws of computation, from geometry. The fact that if you, if as, as you were saying earlier, if you discover an ion channel, ion cha voltage-gated ion channels are basically voltage-gated current conductances, right? They're, they're basically transistors. So as soon as you discover that, well, now you've got logic gates that you can build. Did you have to evolve a truth table for the logic gate? No. By, by by virtue of evolving the 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 the, um, uh, the transistor that you could make a logic gate with, you get the truth table for free. So so all of that kind of stuff. Who knows what else is hanging out there in this? Like I visualize this sort of invisible you know world of, of Platonic forms that are not passive. They uh, they are um, 
capable goals and capabilities that you sort of connect with by building the right physical machine that can take take advantage of that you know um archimedean machines you know all these kinds of things that hang out there that you can make advantage take advantage of if you have the right hardware oh man that's that's so unbelievably hard to get to okay, uh, mathematical platonism it's just can't imagine a world where it's not true can't imagine a world where it is it's so confusing yeah yeah i agree yeah Okay, final question. Um, so uh, you and your lab, I think, are exceptionally good at at managing theoretical conceptual work and empirical work um, in the space. Do you sort of have any general principles or lessons? Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's incredibly hard to the point where I feel lucky whenever we manage to uh, do something like that. And so I would be lying if I said I had a general uh, kind of turn the crank algorithm by which uh, this was, I mean, I can't even necessarily reproduce it on demand, never mind telling anybody else how to do it. Um, I do, I mean, here, here are, here are my, my principles and, and, uh, we, you know, we squeeze out of them what we can. One thing that I think that I try very hard is to try to make sure that my uh, philosophy has practical implications. So, right. So, so this is, for example, my approach to, um, to, to agency. You know, I think, I think that agency claims are engineering claims. I think they are claims about how to relate to systems, how to control them, predict them, uh, communicate with them and so on. Uh, in the sense that I don't think you can have, I don't think you should be able to have armchair pre, 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 uh, commitments to things like, well, you know, thermostats don't have goals. That's my, you know, that's a hill I'll die on. It's a, to me, that's an empirical question. Right. All of these things that you have to do experiments. So so one thing we try to I try to do is to have views that uh, that have practical implications. Not everything is testable right now. Right. Of course. But but everything should make some kind of uh, contact with with reality where where I, I like uh, theories that uh, to, to, to me, a good theory is one that opens new new suggest new experiments so new capabilities new experiments things that pe people people sometimes say to me I'll, I'll give a talk and people say um uh, i love the i love the experiments in the data but i wish you'd stop talking about all this crazy agency stuff it's just you know it's, it's uncomfortable it's it's probably probably you know useless just just do the experiments is anything you don't understand we wouldn't have done any of these experiments if we didn't have that way of thinking about it right so uh to to me the, the 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 ideal thing is to is to have a kind of um a, a generative uh, a sort of approach to things that constantly suggests new new research programs new capabilities so that's so 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 we do the best we can there but um you know the devil is always in the detail some of this stuff is testable some is not and for much of it we're not you know for much of it i'm not smart enough to 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 really know what the ideal right way to crack it right now is hopefully as we uh you know as we as we do more work it becomes but but i but i but i am rather uh, pleased that the way that so far uh we've been able to tie in some some novel experimental results to these kind of theories that have given rise to them and that, and that makes me think you know that makes me think we're at least a little bit on the right track basically